Let us now read together what we confess in Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 32. There we find God's word summarized as follows. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image, so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits, and he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God for, from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? By no means. Scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 138, stances 1 and 2. Above congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, why is this particular Lord's Day in the Heidelberg Catechism? Much of it deals with material already covered. Why does the Catechism do that? That becomes clear when you understand what the Heidelberg Catechism is trying to do. It's about to deal with something very difficult. With something we as human beings have great difficulty grasping and putting into practice. What is that great difficulty? Well, it has to do with the tension that we find in the scriptures about how we must maintain our relationship with God. It has to do with our conduct in the light of who we are in Christ. For what is the case? We know that we are children of God without any merit of our own. The Catechism went through great lengths to establish that very fact. Last 31 Lord's Days, we learned about our sins and misery first, and then we learned elaborately about how we have been saved from our sins and misery. We were told about Christ and about the wonderful things that he has done for us. We were also told about the work of the Holy Spirit, how he preserves us as children of Christ, children of God. And the main lesson in all this is that we do not have to worry whether or not we are children of God. We are, period. Nothing and no one can change that. It's also what the Bible says. Scriptures tell us that absolutely nothing can separate us from his love. We have a wonderful relationship with the Lord our God which cannot be undone. Yet on the other hand, we're also told that we have to do something in order to contribute to our relationship with God, or at least to maintain it somehow. We have to live holy lives. And if we don't, we'll be cut off 
For that reason, the Catechism is going to explain in careful detail each commandment of the Lord. It's also going to deal extensively with prayer. That's what the last part of the Catechism is about. But what is the purpose of it all? You see the dilemma that we are faced with. And therefore, before we deal with all that, that has to be established first. What is the purpose? For you see, there has been so much misunderstanding about this. All non-Christian religions believe in the concept of good works in one way or the other. And they believe that with their so-called God, they have something, they have to do something in order to be something. Even many Christians and Christian religions fall for that in one way or the other. And so we have to be taught time and again that we do not keep God's commandments so that we can show how good we are, so that we can show that we are worthy of his love. And we don't pray to God to show how pious we are. We don't do these things because we can in some way contribute to our covenant relationship with God. You see, the true Christian religion is unique. We give all the honor and glory to God because we confess that we are incapable of our own because of our sin to be in a relationship with God. And therefore, the only reason why we're going to keep God's commandment and pray to him is not to earn something, but to show our thankfulness. Thankful for the many things that God has done for us. And it is that concept that is so hard for us to grasp. And that's what I will preach to you about. I will preach to you about our gratitude. That's the theme. And we will see that our gratitude is the right attitude and also that it yields the right fruit in the second place. In the passage we just read from Paul's letter to the Philippians, we see how Paul shows his thankfulness about just about everything. It seems that he is on top of the world. Listen to the upbeat language that he uses. In verse 10 he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. And in verse 4 he also tells the readers to rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says it again, rejoice. And in verse 11 he says that he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And then he gives thanks in verse 18 for the gift that he received from Epaphroditus. Throughout this letter, Paul shows a most positive and thankful attitude. Why? Why would Paul be in such a joyful and in such a thankful mood? Well, it certainly cannot be because of the circumstances that he finds himself in at that moment. In the first place, he's in poor health. 2 Corinthians 12, he writes about the thorn that he has in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn is, but we do know that whatever it was, it bothered him very much. 
And also Paul had to suffer all kinds of deprivations and many beatings at the hands of men. Just think about what happened to him in Philippi, the very city to which he is writing. We read about that in Acts 16, that the magistrate ordered Paul and Silas to be stripped and beaten. Can you imagine? And after that day, after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. But what do you think Paul did after he was put in, in jail in Philippi and after he was so severely beaten and flogged? Well, then he and Silas sang hymns to God and prayed. Even just after those terrible things happened to them, they were still able to show their joy by singing songs of praise to God. Would you feel like singing hymns under such circumstances? Paul did. So did Silas. And he wants the Philippians to do the same. Us too. That would not have been easy for the Philippians to do either. For they themselves didn't have it all that easy. They lived in a very difficult world, much more difficult than the world of today, at least this part of the world where we live. During that time, there was great hostility over against the Christians. It was much harder for a Christian to function in society. Christians were not accepted at all. Oh, sure, today we see more hostility towards Christianity as well, but this is nothing compared to the kinds of hostility that those early Christians had to endure. During Paul's time, Christianity was a new religion, and unbelievers felt threatened by it because of its claims. In Canada, in spite of the things that are happening, the Christian church is still very much part of this society. It has a long history here. We do not really have to suffer because of our faith. And generally speaking, church people are still respected. But that was not the case during Paul's time. Quite the contrary. And yet, he wants them to be full of joy. And he wants us to be full of joy. After all, if he is able to remain joyful in all those circumstances, they should be as well, and so should you and I. For you see, Paul's life did not get any better in the meantime. For while he is writing this letter, he is once again in prison, this time in Rome. Paul knows that he will likely never be set free again. He will die a prisoner. Indeed, not long after Paul has written this letter, he is put to death. And so, humanly speaking, Paul has a lot more reason for complaint than for joy and thankfulness. So how come that Paul was so thankful? Maybe it was because those Philippians were such nice people and that he is thankful for them. For Paul says some wonderful things about them. For he commends them in his letter in many ways. For example, he expresses great appreciation for the wonderful gifts that they sent by Epaphroditus, and also for the wonderful love that they have shown for him in so many other ways. 
especially thankful for the way that they embraced the gospel of salvation. However, don't think that things are going all that well in the church at Philippi, humanly speaking. In chapter 1, verse 15 and following, he writes to them about some very disturbing happenings there. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. They preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. You see, there were also false preachers among them who were stirring up trouble in the congregation. And so they attacked, they attacked Paul personally. Can you imagine how that must have hurt Paul? Obviously, those false preachers even found some support in the congregation. Otherwise, Paul would not have written about this. That hurt even more. We also read in chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, that there is trouble between some prominent women in the church, between Euodia and Syntyche. They're at odds with each other. And that also caused problems in the congregation. And so the church at Philippi is not an ideal bunch of people. It's not all sunshine and roses. It was not because of the people that Paul is so joyful and upbeat either. There is another reason. The catechism gives us the reason. Question 86 summarizes what our redemption is all about. It says there that we have been delivered from our misery, from our sin and misery, by grace alone, through Christ, without any merit of our own. Think about that. I know that's theological language, but think about what that means. Think about why Paul and others are so thankful when they realize those things. For it is a wonderful message. It is the wonderful message of salvation and nothing in the world compares to that. Time and again as you read the letters of Paul, he will give you a tidbit of his life before he became a Christian. It describes his life before his conversion to Christianity. Before that, he was consumed by hatred. And he hated the Christians especially. And he thought that such hatred against the Christians was pleasing to the Lord. For as far as he could, as far as he could see, they opposed him and God himself. And for that reason, he persecuted them. He had them put to death wherever and whenever he could. Yet in spite of his zeal, he was full of turmoil. He did not have any peace of mind. Paul was a driven man. But then came his conversion. The Lord opened his eyes. The Lord Jesus Christ himself appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And then he learned about what it means to be saved through no merit of his own, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God humbled him. 
He showed him how he had absolutely nothing to offer him. He showed him that he was saved by grace alone. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. What an eye-opener that was for Paul. Paul knew that he wasn't any better than anyone else. God had humbled him. He was certainly not any better than the people in Philippi. Paul knew that he deserved death. He knew what a great sinner he was, and he knew what a great sinner we all are. And that is why he was so thankful through the Lord Jesus Christ. He was saved from his sins, and all those who believe in him are saved. He learned what the Lord Jesus meant when he said to his disciples that only those who belong to the vine can bear fruit and be clean. The vine is Christ. It is only when you belong to him that you can please God and that you can be cleansed. It's from that perspective that Paul writes this letter. For that reason, Paul, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, could be joyful. His suffering for the sake of the gospel is nothing compared to what he received through Christ. And that is why Paul is so thankful and so joyful. And that is why he is also so full of zeal for the law. It is out of thankfulness to show that he means, that he knows what it means to be a member of Christ. But it would appear from answer 86 that there is still another element to the keeping of the laws, not just out of thankfulness, come to the second point, but so that we may be assured of our faith. In the past, there have been some controversy about this sentence of the Heidelberg Catechism, about the assurance of the faith. Some objected to this statement. There were even those who wanted to keep it out of the catechism. Their objection was that here the catechism introduces an unbiblical element to the doctrine of good works. For, so they argued, if you go according to the catechism, then you base your certainty on the good works that you do, on the fruit of your faith. If you are really worried whether or not you're a child of God, then all you have to do is to examine yourself to see whether or not you belong to Christ by looking at your own good works. They will convince you. And they said that is a very shaky ground to base your certainty on. You ought to know from God's word because of the promises that he makes there that you belong to him. Sometimes your good works are not evident to you at all. Sometimes you're down in the dumps. And you're overwhelmed with the fact that you are such a miserable sinner. That you stand condemned before God. And then Satan loves to play with your mind at times like that. He makes you doubt your salvation. You actually question yourself. What? Look what a rotten person you are. Do you really think that God loves you? Do you really think that you have a relationship with him? At times like that, the fruit of your faith is not evident. And so, 
So they say you should not base your assurance on your own subjective self-examination. And that's true. Who hasn't felt like that at times? Often I do. And then they argue further. The word fruits comes from the passage of John 15. And there Christ says, No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And so our good works must be based on Christ, not on our own good works. Indeed, it's true. But look at what the Catechism says here, brothers and sisters. In question 86, that whole section about our redemption is summarized in one sentence. It says there, we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ, without any merit of our own. The Catechism doesn't deny that it is Christ's doing. It's done on Christ's merits. And therefore, our good works alone will not convince us that we belong to Christ. For you see, John 15 also says something else. The Lord Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, the one can never go without the other. If you are in Christ, it is impossible not to bear fruit. Those two go hand in hand. And do you know how such, mani how such thankfulness manifests itself? Well, the purpose of our giving thanks to God, as the Catechism says, is that God may be praised by us. That, brothers and sisters, is what it is all about. It is all to the honor and glory of God. God wants to pluck the fruit of thankfulness. Our sincere attempts to keep the law of God is not done in the first place for our own sakes, but it is all done for God. He wants us to look to him to supply us with everything that we need and to thank him for his gifts. And that's not all. The Catechism also mentions the fact that then, by our godly walk of life, our neighbors may be one for Christ. That is how you bear fruit further. Again, that's quite difficult for us. We would rather talk about our faith. We would rather debate doctrine with others. Especially when we speak to other Christians, we want to talk to them about what the true Reformed faith is all about. And how we confess the truth here in this church. And it's good, of course, that we do that. But the Catechism says it is especially by our godly walk of life that we must win others for Christ. And so the Catechism is not going against evangelism here, against home mission, not at all. It is only reminding us that our talk should be in accordance with our walk. Paul wants the Philippians to imitate him. 
for they could see from his walk what it means to be a Christian. Paul knew how to do the talk, but also how to do the walk. You could not think about the one without the other. If others around us here talk very piously about belonging to the true church and about having the right doctrine and all that, and then they see that we live like the world, then our witness means little or nothing. Now, everyone with whom we come into contact should see that we are different from the world, that we belong to the assembly of the righteous. We do not talk the same and then act in a different way. We have to have different ambitions than the world does. Our whole life should be directed in a different way. We must be driven by different things than the people of the world. Please note that the Catechism gives us proof text for this statement about winning our neighbor for Christ from a text found in 1 Peter 3, verse 1 and 2. Peter says there, Wives, in the same way be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Peter writes here to those women who themselves had become converted, but not their husbands. They were still unbelievers. They remained in the grip of heathendom. And what is it that Peter tries to tell these women? Well, he says, in order to win your husbands, your unbelieving husbands, and then you should not continually speak to them about your faith. In other words, don't be a nag. Even though they still live like heathen, do not aggravate things by talking about your faith all the time. Don't make arguments in your home. In there, instead, try to win them by your reverent behavior. Well, that's how a Christian ought to conduct himself. By being thankful and showing his thankfulness for what God has done. And that shouldn't be just in words, but also in deeds. The latter is just as important, if not more so. It is especially by your walk of life that you ought to win others for Christ. That's also how you have to win your children, brothers and sisters. You can tell them all about the church and bring them along to church, but if during the week they do not see a Christian father or mother, then they will be in conflict. And in the end, they may reject Christianity because of your walk of life. The walk of life of a Christian is so important. And therefore, the Heidelberg Catechism also comes with a very strong warning. It says in question 87 that those who are constantly complaining and grumbling do not belong to Christ. That's impossible. For, you belong to, for when you belong to Christ, then in one way or the other, you will always show thankfulness for all that God has done for you. 
Oh, sure, there may be lots of things wrong in your life. And there are lots of things wrong in my life. For we are all sinful people living in a sinful world. But it doesn't mean that you should not be thankful and show it. May you are truly thankful. May you show that in the way that you behave. And then the catechism comes with quite a list. First speaks about an unchaste person and an adulterer who does not want to repent from his sins. Doesn't refer to the person that falls into those kinds of sins. Who hasn't? I know I have. No, he's speaking here about the kind of person who always has dirty things on his mind, sex, and who does not want to fight against it. He goes out of his way to seek it in filthy, unlawful ways. He gets addicted to pornography. He doesn't want to fight it, for example. He searches out dirty movies. Catechism says such a person will not inherit the kingdom of God. Such a person is not a thankful person. It also speaks about idolaters, thieves, robbers, and greedy people. These are the kinds of people who think of nothing else than how to make money, how to get the next dollar. Catechism also says about those persons that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Be warned. The catechism mentions one more person. It mentions a slanderer. You can tell a believer by the way he or she speaks about other people. If you are constantly bad-mouthing others, if you are constantly pointing fingers at everybody else without humility, without care, then you show yourself to be an unthankful person. And then you lack humility. Doesn't mean that you can't note wrong behavior. Paul does that. In the letter to the Philippians, he mentions names. But he doesn't complain about them. No, he does it because he is concerned for those brothers and sisters in the Lord. He is a humble man. And when you're humble, then you reflect what it means to belong to Christ. In answer 86, it says that we, having been redeemed by the blood of Christ, have been renewed by the Holy Spirit to be God's image. It's a long sentence. But do you know what that means? That means that God's people are very dear and near to you. It means that you will do your utmost to love God and your neighbor as yourself. It means that you have the well-being of your neighbor in mind, also that difficult brother or sister, also the one who draws attention to him or herself. You are concerned. You love that person. Why? Because that person also belongs to God. It's also a covenant child. It means always that you have the well-being of your neighbor in mind, also of your unbelieving neighbor. You want to win them for Christ by your reverent behavior. You do not want to speak ill of other people. 
You want to love them. Brothers and sisters, the catechism reminds us that we must bear fruit. We must bear fruits of thankfulness. And we can do that. But we can do that only if you belong to Christ through faith. And so ultimately, it's not so hard. As long as you give glory to God for making you part of him. As long as you realize that it is all his doing. That he has created you. That he has given you life. That he has given you eternal life. In spite of your sins. And then you're thankful. It says in John 15, No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Belonging to Christ means listening to what he has to tell you. It means putting it into practice in your life. It means being truly thankful for what he has done in spite of your many, many sins. Brothers and sisters, be thankful. Bear fruit. Amen.